I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Today's guest lost his sight at the tender age of six after a battle with retinoblastoma. Shortly after losing a sight, Kyle Kuhn was encouraged to live and pursue a life of adventure by a world-class blind athlete, Eric Weinmayer. Kyle took Eric's advice to heart and went on to become a competitive rock climber, downhill skier, wrestler, and endurance athlete. Kyle has climbed to amazing heights, not only in his personal obstacles, but also in his mountaineering career, summiting heights such as Mount St. Helens in Washington and scaling Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest mountain in Africa. After graduating from the University of Central Florida, Kyle struggled to find employment for more than a year. And during that time, he fell into some really unhealthy habits until he just decided that enough was enough and he needed to fix his life. He reached out to the online endurance community and found someone willing to guide him for a run. From there, he fell in love with running, which morphed into this love and passion for triathlon. Kyle went on to compete internationally for Team USA as a professional paratriathlete. He also represented Team USA at the 2020 Paralympics, and he currently resides at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs as he continues competing around the world with his eyes firmly set on returning to the Paralympics in 2024. In our conversation, Kyle walks us through his adventurous journey that is described, I think, best by his book title, Discovering a Life Without Limits, How Cancer Took My Sight, Blindness Gave Me Vision, and The Mountains Let Me Live. Pursuit peeps, we have talked about mindset and the mental game in so many episodes on this podcast. So why does it come up so much with elite-level athletes? Because just like athletes train their body to perform skills necessary to physically compete, an athlete also needs to train their mind to let their body perform those physical skills when it matters the most, when the pressure is on. This is the aspect of training and competing that I loved the most during my career. And now I love coaching athletes on how to master their own mindset and grow in confidence on their journey. I help athletes with a range of things from learning how to stay focused during competition to working through mental blocks to just being confident in those big competitions. Every athlete has a unique journey and unique challenges that they encounter. One-on-one -on -one coaching allows me to offer that individualized support so we can start where you need the most guidance and move forward at your own pace. Having a mental performance coach also helps with that personal accountability to help you make those crucial changes that will help you grow and improve the most. If you want to learn more about one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, just visit laurawilkinson.com slash coaching. That's laurawilkinson.com slash coaching. Before we get started, make sure you smash that subscribe or follow button and give us a five-star review. But please, even more than that, share your favorite episodes with your friends. Your personal recommendation stands out above anything else that you could do. So if you can share episodes with your friends, teammates, coaches, athletes, that helps us continue to grow so that we can continue to bring you more resources, tools, and inspiration. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on into this episode. Kyle Kuhn, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I am super excited to hear your story today. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Super happy and excited to be here. Kyle, I love to always start at the beginning with my guests and kind of like, where did our sport passion come from and all of that? And your story is a little bit different than some. You had an issue with your sight at a very, very young age. Can you kind of walk us through what that journey was like? 
Oh goodness! Um, all right, all right, all children, uh, gather around the fire here. Uh, <laughs> Take us back um, to uh, the beginning. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, so I was actually diagnosed with a very rare form of eye cancer when I was ten months old. Uh, it's called bilateral uh, bilateral sporadic retinoblastoma. Mm-hmm. Say that ten times fast. No, thank um, you. <laughs> so essentially, what this what it was was I had cancer in both of my retinas, you know, in, you know, in my retinas in both my eyes, and I had no family history. So the doctors that we went to immediately wanted to remove my eyes, but my parents said, you know, hold up a second, yeah. can we get a second opinion or, you know, who's the, you know, who's the best person to treat this? You know, we don't mm-hmm. just want to, you know, have our 10-month-old son lose his eyeballs right off the bat. That's pretty dramatic, <laughs> um, yeah. Little dramatic, but that was what was done back in the you know the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, early on in retinoblastoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, through some weird connection that I, I've never really been able to understand, my parents got connected with a husband and wife doctor team out of Philadelphia, and they were and really still are the leading experts on retinoblastoma. And they said, "Yeah, oh, we can." try to preserve his sight for as long as possible. And so I basically went through six years of really intense cancer treatment. I, I did later on the, you know, my doctors told me that they threw the medical textbooks at me. And then <laughs> when none of it worked, they just started making it up. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, so we did a lot of experimentation, but eventually what happened was my eyes just got so damaged by the treatment um, because I I would react really, really well to treatment. But then, you know, a few months later, the cancer would come back stronger than ever. And so eventually my eyes were just damaged beyond repair Mm -hmm. and they were useless and I still had cancer. So we removed my left eye when I was five years old. And then we removed my right eye just before I turned seven. And so that left me totally blind and you know, Laura, did, you're, did you you're, have, you're <laughs> yeah. Sorry, no, go ahead. I was just uh, gonna say, did you have some sight still before that? I did. I don't know what 2020 vision is, so I don't know what perfect sight is. You know, I was technically legally blind, but you know, I could see enough to know colors, shapes. You know, I knew enough to you know where I could ride my bike around my neighborhood, rollerblade. Oh, wow. You know, play yeah. basketball with my friends, all that. I just had these extremely thick bubble glasses mm-hmm. um you know and they magnified everything to you know a zillion times normal size so that I could actually see because you know if I didn't have these big binoculars on my on my face then I I, I was pretty useless <laughs> in mm-hmm. being able to see anything so what like as a little child I mean do you understand what's going on I mean I know you don't know anything different but like was that a hard experience like knowing that you were going to lose your sight completely? You know, as a kid, I mean, look, you're a mom of four kids. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like they're all, you know, all the kids want to do when they're three, four, five, six years old is get outside and play and make mischief and and all of that. And like, I was no different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was, mm-hmm. I was no different. I was, you know, I was like, hey, docs, can you make me better? I got important things to do. I got to play basketball. I got to, <laughs> you know, rollerblade. Right. I got to swing on the monkey bars. Like. Of course. They're like, oh, this is, you know, they're like, great, great, great. We can only keep your heart rate, uh, you know, a little bit lower so that uh, the chemotherapy uh, is actually (laughs) effective or, you know, whatever. And like, you're not going to hurt yourself. Go for it. But like, I didn't 
know. I mean, I knew I was a little different. I was learning how to, like my parents knew that I was going to eventually go totally blind. So they were preparing me as best they could. I was mm-hmm. learning to, to read and write in Braille. Um, oh, wow, I was okay. learning how to use a, a white cane. I was learning all these techniques and stuff that would help me when I went totally blind. But just like in sport, we can train for competition all we want and we can do all these practice competitions or whatever. But then when you, when you actually get out there on the stage and under the bright lights of a, you know, a trials event or a, uh, the Olympic or Paralympic Games or mm-hmm. World Championships, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. I could prepare till I was blue in the face. I could prepare until I was all shades of colors of the rainbow. And it wasn't going to be enough to be ready for, for total blindness. And like when I went totally blind, it was, it's scary. You know, you're going from being able to see just a little bit to being able to see nothing, you know, and going from, you know, running around with my friends, shooting baskets in the driveway and rollerblading and riding my bike and doing all this stuff to, questioning whether I, you know, whether I could walk down the driveway, you know, right. it was a bit, it was a big change. I'm guessing you were in all kinds of classes or therapies or something to kind of get used to that new life, right? I was, I went to a school that we actually had a vision program. So we had a, all the kids in the county, it was a mainstream school, but we had a bunch of kids from all over the county that had severe visual impairments or we're totally blind. And we learned a lot alongside of our sighted peers. You know, I, I was, you know, again, learning alongside math and reading and history and whatever else you're learning at the ages of you know, <laughs> six, seven, eight, nine years old. I don't even remember what my subjects were back then. All the basics. Um, yeah. <laughs> all the, all the basics. Alongside those, I was also learning cane skills and learning how to interact with the world as a blind person. But even being in all of those, you know, for me, the traditional therapy wasn't enough. The traditional, you know, stuff wasn't enough. You know, I came from a very high achieving, motivated family. I did not want to be a bump on a log. And I felt like I was a bump on a log. You know, my parents were just looking for an answer, looking for an answer. And actually someone from my dad's Rotary Club at the time heard a man speak about at one of their Rotary Club meetings about his son. And his son happened to be totally blind and was an adult and was an adventure, you know, was basically this world-class adventure athlete. Wow. He was a skydiver, downhill skier, rock climber. Wow. um, You know, tandem biker, all, all this different stuff. You know, so she got a hold of his contact info and uh, passed it along to my parents. And the guy Ed, he was like, "Yeah, I'll, I'll arrange for my son to, you know, when he comes to town on his next speaking engagement, and Kyle can sit down and and meet him." And at the time, this guy was not very well known. You know, he had climbed a few mountains, but about uh, two, three years after I met him, he became world renownedly famous as the first blind guy to climb Mount Everest. And yeah, wow. so. Yeah, so my uh, so my buddy Eric Weinmayer sat down with me when I was probably about seven or eight years old, and you know, and here I was, I, I a seven eight year old kid, never having met you know a blind adult or knowing what my life could be like as a teenager, as a you know someone in my twenties or thirties, and you know, here I got Eric, you know, as a early thirties, mm-hmm. totally blind guy doing all this 
crazy cool stuff. And, <laughs> and Is that like he was immediate like, hero status? <laughs> pretty much, pretty much immediate hero status. And Eric actually was uh, one of the things that uh, really stuck out to me. It was, it was a really simple, silly little thing, but Eric was walking around with a guide dog, not a, a long white cane. And so I was like, that's way cooler, you know, having a dog guide you around than swinging this white cane around and like running into stuff. So I was like, I want to do that. (laughs) Um, And and so Eric and I talked for quite a while and he just encouraged me to, you know, not be a bump on a log essentially Mm -hmm. and to push myself, you know, physically, mentally and keep pushing myself in school. And if I learned all of the basic skills of being a blind person, then I could go on to do rock climbing and downhill skiing and and everything and and I essentially did I, I you know I pursued all of those those adventures and and mm-hmm. did all of that kind of stuff and you know just decided that I wanted to live a life full of adventure not live a life of mediocrity and you certainly have not I mean competitive rock climbing wrestling skiing endurance athlete paralympian like you've done all the things for sure like how did that kind of start for you? So you talk to Eric, you're kind of like, okay, I mean, I'm assuming after talking to somebody like that, I'd be like, okay, anything is really possible at this point. So what do I want to do? What was your first big, I guess, adventure into this new kind of adventurous life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like seven or eight years old. I wasn't some wise philosophical kid. But I'm sure just, you had some I wild just ideas. What, yeah. I just kind of did what I was told. <laughs> And Eric told me, he was like, hey, go try rock climbing. So I did. And I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it so much. And we were a, a family that did a lot of stuff together. And, you know, my sisters were playing, you know, soccer or something at the time. And my parents were, were like, well, we don't really have the money to put two kids in soccer, one kid going to the climbing gym. And like, we want to do a whole bunch of stuff together. Uh, so why don't we all try rock climbing? And mm-hmm. my sisters fell in love with it. I fell in love with it. My parents fell in love with it. We started <laughs> going on camping trips centered around rock climbing. So like oh, we, wow. we, we would um, drive up on a, you know, after school, we'd load up in the trailer and uh, drive up to uh, you know North Georgia or Tennessee or North Carolina. And because I grew up in Florida and we would drive up there and do a, just a weekend of climbing and camping and hiking and all that kind of stuff together as a family. And then we eventually... My sisters and I all climbed competitively on the indoor rock climbing circuit. And this is 20 years ago, long, long, long before rock climbing was in the, uh, was in the Olympics. And, and even I was climbing competitively as a totally blind person before the USA Climbing and the International Sport Climbing Federation <laughs> formed a para category. So I was competing against other sighted kids. So it was, wow. it was, it was a ton of fun and it was a, a huge, huge challenge. And so I did that for a few years and, you know, eventually um, that morphed into if you climb indoors, eventually you're going to want to climb outdoors. And so we were, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, my family and I were already rock climbing outdoors. And once you start doing one outdoor activity, it just spirals from there. You want to <laughs> not just rock climb, but you want to hike, you want to, mm-hmm. you know, explore the 
you know, the rivers on a canoe or in a kayak you want to, and then you eventually want to do all of that stuff a little faster. And then, well, the Southeast is great, but I hear there's some big mountains out there in, in Colorado. <laughs> so why don't we head out there and, oh, oh, there's these big mountains. You can like put skis on your feet and slide downhill. That sounds like fun. <laughs> and so it just spiraled from there into this outdoor adventure life. I really kind of became this master of no one thing. It was just, I just fell in love with a whole bunch of different outdoor adventure sports. That's kind of how uh, it happened. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and then we all go to college. So, right. and, uh, but, well, uh, before but, yeah. reality hits and you're in school, you know, and you're having the, all these adventures. And I love that your whole family was involved too. Like that, that makes me just want to like, Okay, so my kids got in trouble not too long ago, and I totally mentioned this to another guest on the show, but we got in trouble with their iPads. So everybody lost their iPads for like Thanksgiving weekend. And it was the most wonderful time because we were just outside the whole time. And I was like, we need more of this. So like hearing you talk, I'm like, that's it. We're going back to the rock climbing gym. Like this is what I need to go hiking. (laughs) We need to do all the things. Like the weather's so nice right now. So I can't believe you're climbing against sighted kids too. Like that had to be so good for you on so many levels and developing skills. Cause I'm guessing it was a little bit of a challenge if you're not even around other kids doing this that have the same, not setback. I don't know. How, how would you, I guess just, I don't even know what, what, how would you say that? You just have different roadblocks, I guess, right? You're going to have to learn differently than the kids who can see where they're going. Like you're going to have to navigate your path a different way. Like, are you just figuring that out on your own? Are you learning how, I mean, how are you hiking through areas? Did you get a guide dog? Are you still using your cane? Or are you just like with your family kind of feeling it out? Like, how does that process work? Because like, to me, it is so different from what I'm used to. So how do you begin to navigate this whole new world? Because you are doing new activities and you're, and you're wanting to do more and more adventures. And I'm guessing you're getting better and better and more skilled at navigating all these new different environments. I will say... Eric Weinmayer was a huge help in a lot of a lot of this because mm-hmm. you know we stayed in touch every time he came to my hometown for a speaking engagement. We got together and, and talked, or we tried to get into the climbing gym together. You know, we tried to do something along those lines, and then you know Eric released his first book right around the time that he climbed Everest, and so he outlined a lot of the the stuff that he did as a blind hiker, climber, mountaineer, all, all that kind of stuff. And so I adopted a lot of the the stuff that he was doing. So, you know, we would put these bear bells on my parents or my sisters or my friends that I was hiking with would put these bear bells on their backpacks and I would have these long trekking poles. Mm-hmm. You know, because why use two legs when you can have four? <laughs> so, you know, in hiking, I was, you know, using my trekking poles. I was following the sounds of bear bells that were, mm-hmm. you know, Tied to my, um, you know, tied to my friends or my family members, but then they were also giving me instructions. You know, step up, step down. You know, coming around this tree, this rock. You know, da 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 da. We um, for rock climbing and for competitive climbing, some of the rules around competition climbing were that you weren't allowed to get beta from people standing on the ground. I had to know where the holds were because otherwise, I'm not going to get off the ground. But we had to develop this system where. You know, my coaches or a coach or a teammate could yell up to me where a hold was using a clock face. So I had to learn a mm. you know the old analog clock. Yeah. Uh, you know, so learning you know where twelve o'clock was and three o'clock and all that. So my coaches or my teammates could yell up to me and tell me 
that there was a hold at two o'clock, but they couldn't right. tell me, is it a jug? Is it a crimp? Is it a sloper? Is it an undercling? Is it a side cling? Is it a, all of these different stuff? So, you know, this is before the days of Bluetooth headphones and stuff now. <laughs> so they literally had to yell up to me, wow. <laughs> you know, and wow. I'm like dangling 30, 40, 50 feet off the ground. They're screaming up at me. Uh, <laughs> so wild. You know, now, now all the blind competitive climbers use like these fancy Bluetooth earpieces where their collar stands out on the ground and they're just like, oh, let, you know, left hand out to 11 <laughs> o'clock. <laughs> oh, man. So yeah. I'm like, oh, technology. back in my day. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're feeling really old, right? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's so funny. That's really cool. I love it. I love how each generation can just impact and, and help lead the next two. But yeah, at the same time, you're still developing your own systems, which is also yep. very cool. I love that. So... Yep. What was going into school for you? You were at the University of Central Florida. Were you doing sports while you were there already? Or was it really more just about school and just kind of being active like you had been? So one of the reasons I actually chose UCF was they had a really competitive club wrestling team. So wrestling, you know, it is a Division One sport at a lot of big schools, but Division One wrestling has like come and gone from the state of Florida over the many, many years. And D1 wrestling program doesn't ever really stick or D2 or D3 even. So a lot of the major universities compete in a very, very competitive national club circuit, essentially. Mm -hmm. And UCF happened to be a very good competitive club team. It was run as closely to an NCAA sanctioned program as you can possibly be without the NCAA funding or anything like that. And the coach was very receptive to me coming to UCF. He, when I went for a visit, just exploring, I went to a few different schools to just check out the campus, mm -hmm. the, you know, the vibe and all that, you know, because I was considering UCF, I was considering University of Florida, Florida State, University of North Florida, I was considering a whole bunch of you know, schools. And the welcome that I got from the UCF wrestling team in particular, really tipped the scales for me. And then I narrowed it down to I wanted to either go to UCF or the University of Florida. And I had been wrestling on my high school wrestling team since my freshman year, and it was my senior year. And, and the University of Florida was releasing who got into the school based on applications and all that on the night that I had my regional wrestling tournament trying to get to state in February. And I told my parents, I was like, all right, looks like I'm actually wrestling a kid from Gainesville High School. Uh, <laughs> if I win this match, I'm getting into Florida. If I lose this match, I'm clearly not getting into Florida. I lost the match in the first period. And I called my mom and she, she was on the website. She was like, you didn't get into Florida. So I, so I said, well, I guess I'm going to UCF. That's a relief because I really wanted to go there anyway. <laughs> um, and, so, and so that's actually how I wound up at UCF. And I joined the club wrestling team, was a, a mat mop for uh, basically a year and a half. <laughs> you know, And uh, loved competing as a member of the UCF wrestling team for a year and a half, two years, whatever it was. But you know, eventually just in wrestling, injuries, skin infections, all that kind of mm -hmm. catch up with you. And I had just kind of fallen out of love with the competitive side of wrestling because, mm -hmm. well, I wasn't really doing very good at it anymore. Sure. So, so I, I decided to kind of move on from wrestling. And I, I actually got into 
group exercise and became a group exercise instructor. I was teaching spin classes and indoor cycling classes and oh, cool. like indoor fitness classes and, and loved doing that. And I graduated in three years with my degree because I wanted to get it done and I wanted to get That's out in the world and, yeah. and be an adult. Okay. Like I said earlier, I strive for excellence. Mm-hmm. I like to be a high achiever. And mm-hmm. so like when I graduated, I was like, I am going to... And this was also the... We were hearing all about... You know, social media was starting to blow up. You know, We were hearing all about the stories of people like Bill Gates and Mark mm-hmm. Zuckerberg, you know, all these yeah. people dropping out of college or the CEO of, you know, CEO, we were having these really young CEOs that were in their 20s and, you know, mm-hmm. early 30s and all that. And so here I am, 21, 22 years old. And I'm like, I'm going to apply for every job on the internet that is CEO and above. <laughs> and, um, and then I started climbing my way down the corporate ladder. <laughs> and, you know, eventually I was just applying to any job that I could find on the internet and, before you know it, I look up, it's a year later and I deep in credit card debt. You know, I wasn't teaching group exercise anymore. I wasn't even exercising or mm-hmm. I wasn't fit at all. I was drinking a lot of alcohol, a lot of alcohol. I was super down in the dumps on myself. You know, if I had actually gone to, you know, a psychologist or something like that, I probably would have been diagnosed with some form of depression or yeah. something along those lines. And um, I was like, I just need to do something. And uh, walked into a grocery store, applied to be a bag boy, and uh, was turned down. Oh man! And so that's rough. So there, yeah. So like you know, here I am, college graduate. You know, at this point, I had you know, I had climbed at summit at Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. I, I had been a college wrestler, competitive rock climber. I had done all these cool things, and it. it I was like, wow, like it meant nothing. Essentially, mm-hmm. I knew that, and I had to sit down and have a talk with myself. I was like, well. If I'm not gonna work, then I have to do something to distract myself. And the one thing that I could afford to do was run because I had no money to join a <laughs> gym, but I needed to figure out how to run as a totally blind guy. And in the past, I had hated running. I absolutely hated it. Like running was something my dad used to make us do as punishment as kids. And, <laughs> you know, running was something you had to do to get in shape for wrestling. Running was something that you uh, had, to, you, yep. know, you had to do. And it was, ugh, ugh, no, no, no. And so I, I jumped on the old handy dandy internet. At least I had a computer and a, an internet connection. Did some Googling on how to run as a blind person and learned that you needed a guide and happened to stumble across a, a website that blind people could look for people that were open to being sighted guides in your area mm-hmm. and found a couple of people in my area. I was still living in Orlando at the time. You know, I reached out to two or three people. One of them responded and I was like, well, beggars can't be choosers. And so I uh, <laughs> met up with this dude and he happened to be a triathlete and we went on a run together and I was like, well, running still sucks, but I, I guess uh, <laughs> I got nothing else to do. <laughs> and so we just started running together. And, and then he eventually peer pressured me into a triathlon because you know we were just having a good time mm-hmm. running together. And, and he was like, dude, come on, like, come over to the dark side, come over to, <laughs> come over to triathlon. And, and uh, I said, well, why the heck not? <laughs> <laughs> At what point did you stop hating the running and actually start liking it a little bit? 
or do you still hate it? <laughs> uh, no, I, fun, it's, it's really funny. I would say that I hated running until I got good at it. It's really weird and it took a while. It's how like a how real, long is a while? Like a couple of weeks or a couple of years? <laughs> like, what are we talking about? Uh, I didn't love running, but let's see. I started running with Mike in 2014. I would say I started to love running uh, about three years ago. Wow. So it took me like six or seven years to really be like, wow. I love this. Okay. So how <laughs> like, I just do you... love running. <laughs> okay. Cause I do not like running. I did not at all. I am not a cardiovascular athlete. I'm like the quick twitch. Like I did die yeah, yeah. like just jumping, but how do you keep pushing yourself for six or seven years to do something? You're just kind of like, eh, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the beautiful thing about triathlon because it's why suck at one sport when you can suck at three. <laughs> 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 Here's the thing: you're you know you're a diver, so you mm -hmm. spend a lot of time in, at the pool. I hated swimming; like I hated swimming more than running. I enjoyed cycling, and I would say that I, I was not a great swimmer. I mm -hmm. was a very bad swimmer. I knew how not to drown, you know. And then cycling, I enjoyed cycling. I really enjoyed cycling, but I wasn't a great cyclist. Like I was nowhere good enough to try and compete at any level, <laughs> you know, in cycling and, and running, I was improving steadily, but I really, I wasn't enjoying running, but what I enjoyed, I have a very twisted mind. I enjoyed <laughs> suffering. Um, I really enjoyed pushing myself and I really enjoyed putting this puzzle of swim, bike, run together. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed trying to figure out, okay, like I'm not a good swimmer. How can I just get good enough so that I'm not as tired on the bike. And then, okay, like how can I get mm. so good on the bike to where I'm not as tired going into the run? And then, you know, eventually it's how good of a runner can I get so that like when I come off the bike, I have pushed myself to the absolute limit in the swim and the bike to now come off and know that I'm going to run the legs off anyone that tries to come with me on the run. For the first three or four years of my triathlon, I had zero interest in the Paralympic Games. I had no interest. I had no desire mm -hmm. to go to the Paralympics. That was for crazy people. Um, <laughs> and, you know, that was for people that couldn't do what I was doing, like Ironman and 70.3. You were you doing know, those and, distances? Yeah, I, I wow. was gravitated toward you know the long suffering. distance the suffering. Like I like suffering, but I like to <laughs> suffer over a long period of time. My first Ironman took me nearly sixteen hours. Oh my goodness! People are, people are like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, how do you suffer for that long? I'm like, "Well, it's really easy. You just suffer a little bit, but just for a long time." Okay, wait. I have a question. I have a question. So you're suffering for this long period of time, but as a blind athlete, do you have to be tethered and share a bike and all those things while you're like swimming and biking and running? Correct. So, so somebody um, else is suffering with you this entire time too, right? <laughs> yep, exactly. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So my buddy, Mike, who was the guy that got me into triathlon, he did uh, my first Ironman with me. And he, at the time he had done, I think he had done like nine or 10 Ironman. So, wow. you know, he had done somewhere he had been in, you know, he had done a 13 hour Ironman. He had done like a 15 hour Ironman, but mm -hmm. I, I think the the slowest one he's ever done is still with me. Um, <laughs> no, actually he did Kona in just under 17 hours. So we beat his Kona time. Um, there you go. But, there you go. Um, 
So he knew what it was like to complete an Ironman. He knew what it was like to suffer mm-hmm. through an Ironman. Like, um, he was also an ER doctor. He knew how to just be on his feet forever and just suffer and, and deal with whatever was thrown his way. I don't think he expected to walk nearly the entire marathon, but <laughs> it is what it is. So in the swim where, and this goes for all di- you know, all distances of triathlon, I primarily compete in sprint triathlon now at the Paralympic level. We're tethered using a bungee cord at the upper thigh and, and we swim side by side in open water. And my guide will uh, like tap my shoulder to let me know when we are approaching a turn buoy. You know, usually if he can reach, he'll tap my right shoulder for a right turn. He'll tap my left shoulder for a left turn and that kind of stuff. And, and then we're on the, and then we have a uh, custom built tandem bike mm-hmm. that, uh, that we ride together. We both pedal the, uh, the sighted guide does all the steering and the braking and the shifting, all that. And then, uh, come off the bike, get onto the run. And, um, I use a waist tether. So it's a, it's basically a race belt that's wrapped around my waist, a race belt that's wrapped around my guide's waist. Mm-hmm. And we have this, this little nylon cord essentially that connects the two race belts. It's about 50 centimeters long and we run side by side. And my guide is telling me no different than when I was hiking or skiing or anything, you know, step up, step down, turn mm-hmm. left, turn right. You know, they're the ones telling me where to go, what to do. And then they're also looking down at their watch, telling me pace and, you know, trying to calculate, you know, how much farther we got. They're letting me know mile splits or kilometer splits or, you know, whatever, whatever we need to, to know and all of that kind of stuff. So, and the funny thing is, as you get faster and more advanced, it, it becomes much more difficult and challenging to find guides because you need, you know, as strong as an athlete as, as I can be, my guide needs to be, you know, when he's having a bad day, he still needs to be better than my best day. You know, so I need someone to be like, if I'm running a 17 and a half minute 5k off the bike, you know, my guide needs to be able to kind of sleepwalk through that. It needs to be a breeze for him. Yeah. So how do you start finding guides that are that good? Is that challenging? Are you getting a lot of like more Olympic level type athletes that are needing to help like be your guides because they have to be able to keep up with how good you guys are? It's been a process. (laughs) (laughs) It has certainly been a process. You know, the funny thing is like it never gets easier to find guides. You know, my coach and I talk about this all the time. The effort never gets easier. You just Mm -hmm. get faster or better. Whether you're 10 years old and you're running a 15-minute mile mm-hmm. or you're 30 years old trying to run a four-minute mile, you know that four-minute mile and that 15-minute mile, you're pushing yourself the same effort mm. and it hurts just as much. The same goes with finding guides. Funnily enough, it's, it never gets easier, especially when you're wanting to train and you know, you're having to train at faster paces and you're wanting to, to race at faster paces. And, because there's a lot of people out there that are like, I'm too slow for you <laughs> right now. So that's the problem that I, I run into. And But no, really how you find, how I find guides and you know training partners and all that is I put myself out there and I try to make friends. I try to, you know, I try to connect with as many people as possible. I embed myself into the running, cycling and triathlon communities wherever I happen to be you know, I try to be a resource and I, I try to let people know that, Hey, look, 
if you're willing to get outside and bike with me or run with me, it's going to be a whole heck of a lot more fun than if you're doing it on your own. And I can guarantee you it's going to be a whole heck of a lot more fun for me because I'm outside and not on my bike trainer or on the treadmill. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, and I'm very, very, very fortunate that I've had some incredible racing guides and training guides over the last four or five years, as long as you know, that I've been doing high performance sport. My primary race guide right now, he and I kind of grew up together in this high performance world. He guided me for, I think, my second ever world triathlon race. We've kind of just been growing together ever since. And, you know, I did um, for the Tokyo Paralympic Games because of the strangeness that was COVID and travel restrictions and, and all that. I actually got connected with Andy Potts, who, who was a 2004 Olympian. And, yeah. You know, Epic, um, you know, will eventually probably be in the USA Triathlon Hall of Fame. Like, you know, just everyone in the triathlon world knows knows Andy Potts, and mm-hmm. you know, he happened to be living in Colorado Springs. I, you know, I was living at the training center, and you know, we trained together all throughout COVID because his racing was on pause, my racing was on pause, and it was a way to connect with someone outside of the training center environment. Mm-hmm. And Zach, you know, my primary race guide now, he was based in San Diego, so. It made sense at that time to have Andy be my guide at my at my first Paralympic Games, but Zach and I have you know been racing together ever since uh, Tokyo, and and we're stoked to go on to try and make it to Paris and level up <laughs> a little bit. So, but yeah, so it's been, it. it's it's been interesting. This is just really it's really fascinating for me because I've always wondered that because I'm like, okay, you guys are are no joke. Like, how do you find people to keep up with you? So that that's really cool. But I. When did you switch your kind of mindset from I hate running? It's taking me six years to like really start enjoying this. And you're not thinking about the Paralympics. You're doing Ironman. You're doing these huge endurance races. When did you start putting your eyes on the Paralympics? Like when did that kind of start coming into like, I want to do that? So in 2016 was the first year that paratriathlon was in the Paralympic Games. So in large part, triathlon wasn't an option for the Paralympic Games until 2016. And in 2016, there were only a handful of sport classes that were in the Paralympic Games for triathlon. And blind and visually impaired men were not one of them. (laughs) Uh, But I, I took a peek at like the results and stuff. And I knew that triathlon had been in the Paralympics, but I still, I, I was still very slow at this point. And I was like, man, the, Paralympic Games, that's for fast people. That's not me. And then at the end of 2017, I did my... So I did my first Ironman in the summer of 2016, right before the... Actually, right before the Paralympic Games in Rio. And it was in Boulder, Colorado. And that took me almost 16 hours. And then I set a goal of... I wanted... Because at the time, there were only eight people who were blind or visually impaired that had gone under 12 hours for an Ironman. And so I set the wow. crazy goal of wanting to go under 12 hours. So in 2017, <laughs> so 2017 I accomplished that in uh, at Ironman Arizona and Man. you know squeaked under 12 hours for an Ironman. And then at the time, no totally blind person had gone under 11 hours for an Ironman. So I decided that's what I wanted to do in 2018. At the time, I was kind of self-coached. I promise I am getting to uh, answering your question. (laughs) Uh, But I kind of have to take this 
meandering journey to get there. So at the time, I was self-coached. And you know, I decided that, well, if I'm going to try to go under 11 hours for an Ironman, I need a coach. I had no idea where to start to find a triathlon coach, let alone someone that could coach me to get under 11 hours to do something that no totally blind person had ever done before. And so I went to a camp called No Sight, No Limits, which is put on by you know my friend and, and USA teammate, Amy Dixon. Um, yeah, so we've, she, had, we've she, had Amy yeah. on the show too. Yeah. 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 So, so Amy put on camp No Sight, No Limits at the beginning of 2018. And I, I went to her camp because I was still learning about triathlon, even though I was you know, now considered one of the fastest Ironman triathletes, you know, in the blind vision impaired community, I still felt that I was a newbie at this and I was still learning. And so I was like, oh, I'll go learn from, you know, some of the best triathletes in the world. I show up at Amy's camp and I find out I'm one of the two or three fastest people there. Wow. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's kind of surprising. I met a few coaches. Um, I wound up interviewing a few of them after the camp. And at the end of the camp, Amy pulled me aside and was like, Kyle, you can be really good at this sport. You really should consider racing at the world triathlon level. And I just kind of, you know, said, ah, that's, that's cute. I, I, don't, I don't think so, Amy. <laughs> and she said, no, 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 I'm, I'm literally going to uh, bully you into uh, signing up for some world triathlon races. And, and so, uh, Amy, what, what does it say about me? I caved to peer pressure. <laughs> um, so I signed up for our continental championships. You know, wound up placing fourth, just like ten or fourteen seconds off the podium, or or whatever. And um, was like, oh man, this this was kind of fun, and this was kind of cool. And you know, at that time, I, I found and hired a coach, and was starting to you know really learn how to train as a triathlete. And you know, my coach was absolutely hammering me with workouts. I was training probably. I thought she was hammering with workouts. I was training only like 12 hours a week or something like that. <laughs> um, and over the course of 2018, I just continued building this base of endurance and speed. And I did the Boston Marathon in 2018. I did. Uh, I was part of a team of cyclists that completed Race Across America. I did another world triathlon race where I took second. It wound up being a duathlon. Then I went on and um, was able to complete Ironman Arizona in under 11 hours. Um, wow. So I, I achieved that goal. And then at the end of August in 2018, there was a camp at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center that USA Triathlon was running. It was a talent ID camp. And I applied to it because I was like, oh, I'll go learn from people that coach high-performance athletes. And mm -hmm. you know, this is a chance for the guy who was going to be guiding me for Ironman Arizona. It's a good chance for us to go and train a little bit together and mm -hmm. uh, you know prepare and, and all that. And so we uh, we went there. It was like a four or five day long camp. And at the end of the camp, the head coach of the camp sat down with me and was like, Kyle, you, you have a chance to be really good at this sport. You were clearly kicking everyone's butt in most of the workouts and stuff you know, that we were having here. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you that the word is that blind and visually impaired men are going to be in the games for 2020 at the Paralympic Games. You have a chance if you decide that you want to pursue this at a higher level. And I would encourage you to apply to live 
here at the training center because they're opening up spots for the USA Paratriathlon resident team. My coach at the time, because I really loved my coach at the time, uh, she's uh, Leslie, pa- you know, Leslie Patterson. She was a, a five-time off-road triathlon world champion. You know, she's known as the Scottish Rocket. She's just a little spitfire of a lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I talked to her about it. She said, if you don't submit your application to the training center, you know, and fire me as your coach, then I'm going to submit your (laughs) (laughs) application and fire myself as your coach, uh, because this is too good an opportunity for you to pass up. And so I applied, was accepted to join the the resident team, you know, went on and and completed, you know, Ironman Arizona in under 11 hours. And, and then it was announced that blind vision paired men were indeed going to be in Tokyo for paratriathlon and moved to the training center in beginning of 2019. And, you know, been working with my coaches there ever since. And even then, it was really this exploration of what can I do as an athlete? It, it was never like, yes, in, in high performance, you know, now I'm, I'm so embedded in the, in the high performance world that look, it is about getting to the Paralympic Games. It's about performing at world triathlon races. You know, we don't like to admit it. It is about the medals you bring home. <laughs> uh, the medals matter. <laughs> but, you know, for, for me, especially at that time, it was never, I want to make it to the Paralympic Games. I want to win a gold medal or anything like that. It really was, what can I do as an athlete? What can I do? do physically, mentally, and like, where is my breaking point? And how far can you push yourself, right? Yeah, it, it was it was how far can I push myself? Where is the edge? And, mm-hmm. you know, can I push myself over that edge? And can I create a new can I create a new edge? And, you know, I just kept finding every time I reached my edge, I, I was able to find someone or something that helped me build it out a little bit more. And I was able to push myself just a little bit further, a little bit further. That's kind of been that, you know, then I happened to go to the Paralympic Games and it was, man, it was, it was an experience. So, so what was that like? You qualify, you make the Paralympic Games. Like, what was that experience like? It was, you know, it was different. I never experienced anything quite like the games before. And I've done some really cool stuff in my life. Um, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can freely admit that I've done some really cool stuff. You know, it was interesting because COVID shut the world down for a year plus. You know, and you know, mm-hmm. the games were postponed. And um, had you had you already it, qualified when it got postponed? I had okay. not, and no one had qualified for the games in triathlon at least from the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. the way the U.S. had written the criteria for punching your ticket to go to the games, no one had qualified. And we had no idea what races were going to count, if we were going to actually have the ability to race. And at the time, there were three viable candidates on the male visually impaired side of the coin that had a chance to go to Tokyo and everyone's odds-on favorite was Aaron Scheides. He was a multiple-time world champion. He had absolutely dominated visually impaired men's triathlon for years. And the other was, you know, myself. I had kind of slid into second American 
And then the third guy was Brad Snyder, um, mm-hmm. you know, who came over from swimming and you know, was still trying to figure out this triathlon thing. And yeah, and we so, actually and, had Brad and, yeah. on the show and he, we were talking all about his swimming and he had just yep. started the triathlon and then he went and <laughs> did amazing. So yeah, that's so Ex- funny. Exactly. Exactly. So everyone, everyone, Prior to COVID shutting the world down, Brad was a long shot to make, <laughs> it, you know, to make it to Tokyo as a triathlete. And then we come out of COVID, and I absolutely came out of COVID and blew the world up. You know, not to toot my own horn, but like I rushed the first few races of, you know, the first few races out of COVID. And then on the very last race of the qualifying window, Brad, Aaron, and I all lined up together and had just an epic showdown. Um, Brad Brad and I had an epic battle. Brad finished just ahead of me. I finished just ahead of Aaron. So it was was kind of crazy. Like Brad and I wind up going to the games. It was crazy. And, you know, Brad goes on to, to win gold in Tokyo. You know, I was honestly just kind of happy to be there um uh, and um uh, how know, was your I, how was your race though it, it was rough um okay. it was rough it was rough i came out of the water fourth you know which was you know not where i wanted to be i had the talent and the capability and the ability to come out of the water probably second or third but i wasn't out of the running cuz the swim has never been my strong point and we knew that my bike run combo at the time was one of the strongest in the field. And, you know, we went and it just so happened that things did not come together on that particular day yeah. for me. I didn't have the bike performance that I, I normally did. But despite that, I still came off the bike and I was I was in second place. So I was in the hunt for a medal. You know, Brad was the only one ahead of me. Wow. And our run was a, a four lap run course. And I think I was in second until lap three. I think I was, no, I was, I, I think, uh, I think the guy from Japan passed me like lap one or lap two. So I was still in the medal hunt essentially until lap three or four. And then it was on lap four that I, I dropped from third down to fifth, I oh, think. Um, and, and so it yeah. was, it was, it was hard. It was hard, you know, because, you know, especially I, I, I had won my first two races of 2021. Uh, So I had a lot of high expectations. I had Mm -hmm. expectations of a medal and then I I finished fifth. And so I was, I was pretty disappointed, but at the same time, you know, going into that games, you know, as a country USA triathlon, we had never won an individual medal on the men's side, on the Olympic side or the Paralympic side. Wow. so, So our goal was just to get a dude on the podium. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. And and we had two podium contenders in, in Brad and myself in the men's VI race. We had podium contenders all over the place on the para side. And, you know, and unfortunately, we didn't get anyone from the Olympic side in the individual men's race on onto mm-hmm. the podium in Tokyo. So like our goal going into the Paralympics was Brad and I were, were both like, look, let's just get one of us on the podium. And like, <laughs> like if we're both on the podium, that's a, that's a huge win. So like, you know, and I, I've talked to Brad 
since then. And, and I was like, dude, if I wasn't going to win gold, I was going to do my darndest to make sure that you won gold. And he, you know, he told me that pretty much the exact same thing. He was like, yeah, he was like, if I wasn't having the day, then I was going to do everything I could to make sure that you were, you know, on that podium and, you know, near the top of the podium. So like, it, so that was our, that was our goal. And like, we came away with that success, you know, Team and effort. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a really cool opportunity. It was a really cool experience. Absolutely. You know, the, the Paralympic games was, a uh, it was strict. It was, you know, we were still in COVID, um, yeah. but we, on the USA triathlon side, we had such a great team. We were a family. We absolutely loved hanging out with each other. So like, we just had fun. We enjoyed the experience and we've all gone on to continue to, to race and, and have, you know, huge successes. And, and now we're all just, we're, gearing up and super excited for for yeah. 2024. So. Well, and so there's only been, unlike other quads, like there's only been three years between the last games and this one. What has been the difference for you? I mean, maybe you're feeling more like a veteran, you know more what to expect. Like what's different this time around? It's actually funny because my first go at the games was only three years. It was actually only supposed to be a year and a half because we didn't know that, you know, men's visually impaired triathlon was going to be in the Paralympic Games until December of 2018. The games were supposed to be in August of 2020. Uh, so I was supposed to get ready in a year and a half. <laughs> um, wow. And then it got ex- and then it got extended out to you know 2021. So I, I actually was kind of relieved from a performance standpoint. I should sure. I should clarify that. I was, right. I, I, it, no. COVID Why helped we understand? me. <laughs> I gotcha. COVID, COVID helped me from a performance standpoint. And so for me, three years is I'm like, oh. I've done this before. But as far as the differences or the changes is in 2022 and 2023, I was one of the guys with the target on his back. I had, you know, especially in 2022, I had coming out of the games in 2021, I was top five at the games. I was a, you know, just a, a few seconds off the podium. I had had a, a, you know, breakout time. And so I was the guy with the, target on his back and in 2022 for the most part i you know i wore that that target well i won three or four races and had some good showings then i had to have surgery in 2023 to repair my shoulder or to clean out my clean out my shoulder so my uh my 2023 season was a was a little shorter than it uh it could have been this time around like in the lead up to tokyo i was the underdog outside you know, just if I got to the games, it was a success. The difference between Tokyo and Paris is I'm expected to get to the games. And this, you know, comes from, you know, and this expectation, I acknowledge it comes from myself. You know, my coach and I have talked about it. Look, I'm at the training center because the expectation is you're going to go to the games and you're going to perform and you're going to fight for a medal. That's the expectation. So I would say that's the biggest change is that expectation is more out there in the open and learning how to navigate those expectations. And it's been been challenging. You know, I've had some serious highs and some serious lows. I've had to, you know, fight through injury, fight through disappointment. I've I've put tons and tons of pressure on my on myself. You know, I've had to learn how to cope with not achieving my goals. I've had to learn how to deal with success 
deal with failure, all those things. But at the end of the day, I'm swimming, biking, and running. That part hasn't changed. I just swim, I bike, I run. I'm still putting out the same effort that I did in 28, you know, in 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. I'm just doing it at a little bit faster paces now. Yeah, <laughs> that's very true. That is very true. Well, Kyle, I know you've also written a book called Discovering a Life Without Limits, How Cancer Took My Sight, Blindness Gave Me Vision, and the Mountains Let Me Live. Tell us a little bit about that and where we can uh, find it. Yeah. So the book describes my life prior to triathlon because it was, like I said earlier, I wanted to find how to live a life of adventure, you know, live a life without limits. And it was my pursuits of adventures in the mountains in particular that allowed me to do that. You know, the mountains, you know, even this Florida boy discovered a home in the mountains. And that's what allowed me to break out of a shell and, and find a version of the person that I'm meant to be. And so I talk all about the various adventures that I, I got into as a pre high performance athlete. And uh, talk about all about growing up and all of that kind of stuff. But you can visit my website, kylecoon.com. That's K Y L E C O O N.com. Uh, I have links to where you can uh, buy the book directly from, from my publisher's website, uh, walnutstreetpublishing.com. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon Kindle as well as Audible. So it was, it was really important for me to have an audiobook version. Of the book, you know, just because I grew up with audiobooks and yeah. absolutely loved them, so so it was it was a really important thing for for me to have an audio version of the book, and uh, I was actually really happy. Actually, one of one of the uh, men that my dad served with in the Marine Corps became a a voice actor. Oh, cool! Post his military career, and. When I found that out, I, I called him up. I was like, "Hey, hey, Uncle Kirch, uh, you want to uh, read my audio book?" <laughs> and, and so he's the so so he's the voice of, uh, of my audio book, which is which is really really cool. That's um, so very yeah, cool. Just, yeah, you can check it out just by my website, kylecoon.com. Um, and I, I'm pretty Perfect. sure I have links to all the places you can get the book. But yeah, awesome. Well, and where can we follow you online so we can keep cheering you on toward Paris? Yeah, so I'm Instagram and Facebook are my primary social network platforms of, mm-hmm. of choice. Uh, so I'm on Instagram at Iron Kyle. That's E Y E R O N K Y L E. Kind of a little play. I on, see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. You know, a little play on Iron, you know, Iron Man, and also you know, keeping the eye on <laughs> Kyle. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, Iron, so at Iron Kyle on Instagram and then uh, Facebook at Kyle Coon Speaks. And then uh, I'm also over on, on LinkedIn. So if you want to uh, shoot me a LinkedIn request or follow me over, over there as well, I, I do a little bit of stuff over there as well. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes. But Kyle, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. And I'm excited to see what 2024 has in store for you. Yeah. Thanks so much, Laura. Really appreciate it. And, and love that you're doing this podcast, you know, because we're at the end of the day, we all are pursuing gold in yep. in something, whether that be sport or life. And even though some of us may n- never achieve getting a gold medal, it's the pursuit of that gold medal 
you know, in sport and life that allows us to be excellent. So I, I love it. Dude, drop the mic right now. Like, that's it. That's exactly why I'm doing it. Awesome. <laughs> excellent. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.